Just a moment, we're going to go in our Bibles to the Gospel according to Luke. There is the option of a, um, a Sunday school for those aged five to seven. Um, I believe our sister Patricia um, is actually going to, in God's providence, be covering the same content that um, I'm going to be in our message this morning. So um, we trust that will be a beneficial time. Uh, Let's go in our Bibles to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. Last week we were in 1 Chronicles 22. We've made quite a leap to get to Luke chapter 1. A lot of stuff has happened since then. We saw the promise of God to His servant, King David. You shall have a son, and you shall call his name Solomon. He will be a man of rest, a man of peace. He will build the temple for the Lord. He will walk in my ways, the ways of righteousness, and I will establish for him an eternal throne. Solomon indeed was born, he was raised, all sorts of drama surrounding him in his life, his young life, his family life would not have been characterized by peace as a child. David's later years were characterized by turmoil and strife. The consequences of his sins Solomon would reign before David was even dead. He was made co-regent with David. He reigned as king while David was still alive. David would eventually be um, buried with his fathers, but when Solomon took the, the throne, he already had, though just a teenager, years of experience. He did build a temple. He was a man of peace. He did experience the glory of God. And he saw much of God's goodness on his reign. But Solomon also rebelled against the Lord. Not only Solomon, but succeeding generations of kings, the descendants of Solomon. The kingdom was split after Solomon's Death, and you have ten northern tribes. They became the nation of Israel. And you had two tribes in the south. That was the nation of Judah. And Jerusalem was in Judah. There were righteous kings in Judah. There was only one king who came close to approximating righteousness in Israel. Israel was the first to face the consequences for that long term. They fell to the Assyrian Empire. And they would never know complete restoration. They would be scattered. And many of their tribes have infamously been lost to record. The southern tribes of Judah aptly uh, called Judah because you have the tribe of Judah. 
And then you have the, um, uh, the, the tribe of Benjamin, which many people forget. It was much smaller, but it was significant. And those tribes in the southern kingdom, they knew more righteous kings, but that's not really saying much. Uh, there, there was still the general trajectory of rebellion against God, sin against Him. And they would face the consequences of their sin. They would be invaded by Babylon. And um, after failed previous invasions by other enemies, Babylon would succeed. And the temple that Solomon had built was reduced to a heap of rubble. There are several laments that the Old Testament provides for us that communicate the devastation on the city of Jerusalem and particularly the horrific condition of the temple, which is no more a temple, but it is a nesting place for birds and a den for jackals, overgrown with thorns, thistles, and weeds. In the mercy and grace of God, the people were restored. King Cyrus of Persia uh, overtook the Babylonian Empire. Babylon came falling down and Cyrus liberated all of the scattered peoples that had been enslaved by Babylon. You can go to the British Museum and see the Cyrus Cylinder whereby he authorizes the redispersal of people stolen from their lands. Until that was discovered, many people thought that the account of Scripture was the stuff of fiction, fantasy. Why would a uh, a, a powerful king, a tyrant, redistribute people from across many nations back to their homelands and tell them you can build temples and worship your own gods and have freedom of religion and freedom of, of nationhood in some degree. Um, but that's exactly what he did. The prophets foretold it. Biblical history records it. And there are artifacts in our own city that further demonstrate it. The people rebuilt the temple. Some of you will recall back in um, the early days of last year, March, April, May, perhaps even into June, we walked our way through Haggai. Haggai being the, the prophet who came and rebuked the people because they were spending more time on their personal accommodations not that they were building homes, because everyone needs a place to, to live, but they were um, making them more luxurious, paneling them, and uh, all sorts. And they were neglecting the house of the Lord. That is, they were focused on their own life, but not on the worship of God. And that was very timely, because it was in the earliest days of the pandemic, and so much uncertainty and confusion. And um, there was a very real sense that, that God was stripping back the paneling of our houses and saying, build my house. We concluded last year in Zechariah, who along with Haggai spoke the word of the Lord to the, the people as per uh, the rebuilding of that temple. And the temple was rebuilt. But as I, I, I mentioned last week, people began to abuse it again. They began to dishonor God. They, they, while they were still worshiping Yahweh, the Lord God of the, the covenant, they, they were going through the motions of worship. They were offering 
as sacrifices animals that they'd stolen. The healthy animals were stolen animals. And the other animals were sick animals that they had to put down anyway, that were an inconvenience, a liability. So sick animals and stolen animals, and they were bringing these to God as though they were something. And, um, and Malachi would preach in those days, as temple worship was abused and spiritual darkness clouded the land, he would preach of a day when the sun of righteousness would shatter the dark gloom of a wicked world, bringing retributive justice for the arrogant and the wicked and restorative, reparative justice for those who, though broken, serve the Lord. The last words of that prophet say, Behold, I will send you Elijah. Before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, He will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. And that is the last word of the Old Testament in the English language. Destruction. The following 400 years were not bereft of the blessing of God or of His powerful presence working in and through the Jewish people or even among the nations. The world that, that we read of in the New Testament is filled with Gentiles who nonetheless believe in the Lord God, who serve Yahweh. Similarly, our Jewish neighbors recently would have celebrated a festival called Hanukkah. And in that festival, one which our Lord and Savior Jesus would have celebrated, in fact did celebrate, it was during that festival that He said, I am the light of the world. And they remember and commemorate the goodness and grace of God when the oil didn't go down and the flame kept burning and there was still hope in their hearts in the face of grievous oppression. And yet, the voice of the prophets had ceased. It's as though the prophetic silence is broken only by the echoes of that last declaration through the centuries that followed. Promises of hope, but the worrying threat of destruction. The promise of Elijah. The promise of fathers loving their children and children loving their fathers and each seeking each other's good, but the decree of destruction if they do not. And now it seems that destruction is real. The Romans have conquered vast portions of the world and already their nation has lost its sense of individual autonomy, nationhood. It's submitted to Gentile tyrants. Destruction. Where is Elijah? Where is the long-promised prophet who will prepare the way of the Lord? Where is the one who will turn hearts of fathers to their children and children to their fathers? Where is the hope of the nations? Good news and peace to Israel. And so we, we meet Zechariah. Luke chapter 1 verse 5 says, In the days of Herod, king of Judah... Judea, rather. There was a priest named Zechariah. Start within the days of Herod, king of Judea. 
You might not see the significance just of that, but um, they would have. Herod was a, a very wicked and insecure, unstable man. His children would follow in his footsteps. But this particular Herod, Herod the Great, was um, a, a narcissist, if ever there was one. Many were slain because of his insecurities, including some of his own children. In the days of that Herod, a Herod who incidentally had expanded the temple, had rebuilt and renovated the temple built during the days of Haggai so much that it became known as Herod's temple. It was a grand project and it would actually continue even after his death. Forty years it would take over that. Herod, king of Judea, but there, was no, there is no king of Israel and there is no king of Judah. Judea is a Roman province, so some king. He, he's someone who has to submit to other kings, other masters, other lords. These are not days of, of hope. These are days of despair. And again, the threat of destruction, lest I strike the land with destruction, keeps resonating from the prophet Malachi. But there was a priest named Zechariah. The Greek form of that name is Zacharias, if you're wondering if that's what your Bible has, Zacharias. The first thing I want you to see about Zechariah is that he was a devoted man. And as we, as we learn a bit about Zechariah, and I, I, I don't want us to learn about Zechariah, nor do I want us to learn about his spoiler alert, son. But I want, us, I want us to learn about a God who is gracious. We see in Zechariah a devoted man, but God is gracious. Zechariah, he carries a name held by priests and prophets of ancient Jewish history. It proclaims a testimony of God's relational character towards His people. It says, the Lord has remembered. Remember that, that prophecy, I will send Elijah. I will send one who will turn people's hearts to one another within the family. Um, uh, otherwise, I will strike the land with destruction. The Lord has remembered. Zechariah's name testifies to the remembrance of God. Zechariah is himself a priest. We are told that he belongs in, in, in verse 5 to the priestly division of Abijah. This is the eighth of 24 priestly divisions. If, if you really want to dive deep on that, you can go to 1 Chronicles chapter 24, verses 1 through 10, and Nehemiah chapter 12, verse 17. Each of these served one week, twice a year. They... So, so don't think that you had one priest that's doing all the work or a group of priests doing all the work all year round. The, the, the priests had a cycle. They, they, they would serve one week, twice a year. Zechariah is of the division of Abijah. Zechariah has a wife. Another good thing that you could say about a man. Um, and she's a good wife. She herself has a rich heritage. She is identified as a daughter of Aaron. That is to say, she's descended from Aaron, 
the brother of Moses, the original high priest of the tabernacle of Israel. Aaron, the original high priest of the tabernacle of Israel. And he's married to, to this man's great, great, great multiplied granddaughter. He has a rich heritage in his own family. But he also married a woman with a rich heritage as well. They had a holy, happy, and healthy marriage. They were righteous before God. We're told that uh, they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. So they were righteous before God. And we know from Scripture that the righteous live by faith and are righteous by faith. And from a human perspective, they walked blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. So this is not simply one of those, well, the just, the, you know, they're justified by grace through faith sort of things. And, you know, uh, but, the, the, you know, there, there's some, some real evident weaknesses, some sin issues that, that are pretty apparent, some areas of personal growth and development that everyone knows and is just trying to patiently forbear with. Um, rather, these are people who, who are righteous by faith, and by faith they are righteous. That is, they live out righteousness in their life. What a wonderful couple they must have been. They were devoted. We have something here about their ancestral heritage, something about their professional capacity, something about their personal conduct, and something about their communal reputation. Not a word of it is bad. All of it is good. All of it is positive. They were known for their devotion to God and to the people. Zechariah particularly. But I, I want to remind you that his very role as a priest is indicative of the fact that all are sinners and all have sinned and need forgiveness. And it doesn't matter how devoted you are and it didn't matter how devoted he was, he still had to make sacrifice. He still needed a mediator. He still needed a physical temple to walk into and an altar on which blood would be sprinkled and an incense thingamajig that the uh, stuff was lit on and blowing up to God. He needed all of that. He needed God to hear him as he confessed sin. And he needed God to answer him with forgiveness. Zechariah's very office declares our weakness. Indeed, his own weakness. You know, it's actually in the context of him performing his priestly duties that something truly remarkable happens. But we'll, we'll come to that in just a moment. All of this good stuff is said about Zechariah, but... And some of you might find this next line a bit insensitive, but they had no child. As though that some sort of detraction. But you have to remember, we've come across this twice now in recent weeks. We, 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 we saw it with Abraham and Sarah, did we not? We saw it with Manoah and his wife, yes? Now we see it with Zechariah and Elizabeth. Uh, this is a common theme that you see, actually, um, especially when we're talking about infancy narratives in the Bible. People who can't have children. 
And in a society where children were a blessing from the Lord, some had inferred that the absence of children necessarily meant a curse from the Lord. It was a very heavy sigma to carry, a very heavy burden. And the pressure was on, and the expectations were on. And I know some of you are from, from cultures that might pressure you to get married. And of course, I've, I've preached on singleness and the glory of singleness before. There is no biblical command to get married. It's an allowance. So if you're single, don't beat yourself up about it and don't let anyone else beat you up about it. You can find satisfaction as you are. But some of you are married. Maybe there's pressure culturally and familially to have children. And maybe, maybe you've tried, but you can't. Or you don't. Maybe you know somewhere inside that you won't. God forbid. But what if? And there's that pressure, and there's, there's that, that you know from in, pressure fr from outside, maybe the culture, from the family, from yourself, from all around. Zachariah and Elizabeth were real people, and they had the real problems that real people have. They couldn't have a child, and it's well past childbearing years. I mean, not, it's not quite as crazy as Abraham, who was 100 and his wife was like 90-something. Uh, that really was pushing it. But Zechariah and Elizabeth, they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, which again just underscores it because they know where the problem was. Elizabeth was barren. And so imagine... Imagine what Elizabeth might be feeling, what she might be thinking. In a society where when she was married to Zechariah, the expectation was that she would give him a child. That's how they would think. That's how they would put it. She will give him a child. And of course, ideally, the child would be a son. But, you know, they would cross that bridge when they got there. As it is, there's not even a daughter to continue the line. It ends. And she knows, and everyone else knows, that it's on her. And there's sorrow with that. Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. And so it's not one of those things where, oh, it's, it's going to be okay. Just give it some time. It's, they're, they're well past that period where they began to say, that's not how it works. It's literally, trust, trust me, we know. The um, other passages sometimes will, will say, the way of women had ceased to be with her. That's the King, the King James Version, I think, something like that. Zechariah is nonetheless a devoted man. He nonetheless serves the Lord. 
He nonetheless loves the Lord and goes about his priestly duties. He does what he's called to do, and he does it with devotion. He goes to Jerusalem when he's called up, when it's his cycle. He goes there. He's serving as priest before God when his division's on duty. Verse 8 says, According to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. Now this is interesting because where they burned incense was in the holy place. And the holy place was right in front of the curtain through which the great high priest entered into the Holy of Holies. But what some have, have thought in very early in the church's history is the language of the text indicates something a little beyond just, just lighting the incense at the front of that curtain. And they believe that it might, based on what it's saying, it seems that like he went beyond the curtain to actually, with a censer, bring the incense as they did once a year on the Day of Atonement into the presence of the Lord in the Holy of Holies. In other words, people that some of you into church history might have heard of, Ambrose of Milan, Augustine, John Chrysostom, moving on quite a few centuries to the 700s in our own island, the Venerable Bede, these men believed that Zechariah was performing high priestly duties. Not least because it seems he's the only one doing it. And other people are waiting outside and they're wondering what's taking him so long. Where is he? And they're not going in to check. And um, uh, people have done the research and uh, I'm not going to get bogged down in all of that this morning. But um, the years during which this would have been happening were years when they did not have a high priest because Herod had removed the high priest. But they still had to have someone offer incense. They still had to have someone sprinkle the blood. They still had to have someone go into the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement and petition God for the forgiveness of sins. And so what did they do? And the historians say... They cast lots, and they chose a priest to be high priest for the day, for the moment. Like I said, quite a few people in the early church believed that what, that's what was going on. It's, in one sense, perhaps immaterial to what happened when he was there. All that we know is that he is alone, and other people can't go in and be with him. He's there. And they're wondering, maybe Zechariah is not as devoted as we thought. He's taking a long time, and there are lots of stories of priests spending a little too long and people thinking God had struck them dead. There's one quite humorous story where the, the priest was praying on, on the Day of Atonement for forgiveness and for the nation, confessing the sins of the nation, and he, it, it, there was a lot of sin to confess. And he came out and they said, what took you so long? We were afraid something had happened. He said, I was confessing your sins. I was praying to God for your nation. Don't resent me for it. And they said, okay, you, you pray to God for the nation, but don't pray quite so long. And, um, you know, maybe, maybe every now and then some of us need to, uh, to, to, to hear that. Uh, but the, this, this, this goes on. Zechariah is in in the presence of the Lord. And they're waiting outside. And 
there's no way of knowing if, uh, you know, if he's okay. They can't enter. They have to wait. And Zechariah is there. What's happening? An angel of the Lord has appeared before him. He was a devoted man. But devoted doesn't cut it. God must still be gracious. He was a devoted man. Praying for the sins of the nation, sprinkling blood, offering incense, whatever it was he was getting up to in that room, that this was a man who was a sinner before God, who needed salvation from God. Grace. He needed to know that God is gracious. While, while he is in the room, we're told that an angel of the Lord was standing on the right side of the altar of incense, and Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. Was Zechariah praying about it in that moment? I actually don't think so. He was going about his priestly duties. Perhaps this was a prayer he had offered to the Lord years before. He's an old man. And although he wouldn't call her an old woman, he'll be a little more delicate and say, she is advanced in years. The angel says, you'll have a son. Your wife, he's very precise. He doesn't want, he doesn't want Zechariah pulling an Abraham and Hagar on, on the situation. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son. And you shall call his name John. And guess what John means? God is gracious. A devoted man, but God is gracious. And we're told that this this son named John, would, would fill them with joy and gladness. You will have joy and gladness. Many will rejoice at his birth. He will be great before the Lord. He must not drink wine or strong drink. Basically, he's setting him up for a Nazarite vow here, isn't he? Very much like Samson. You see the similarity? Um, uh, he'll not drink wine or strong drink, but will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And that's not the purpose of this message this morning, but I do want you to note that John the Baptist was filled with the Holy Spirit in his mother's womb because, one, he was alive in the womb. Wasn't a clump of cells, but was a living creature of the Lord God in his mother's womb. Secondly, God had a design for him from the womb. That child was knit together for a purpose within the womb. Thirdly, he was consecrated for the task of preparing the way of the Lord. And in some degree, from the beginning, his parents and him would be conscious of the Lord whose way he was to prepare. Because it says he will... Turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and He will go before Him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. 
Malachi said, Elijah will come before the great and awesome day of the Lord. Malachi said, he will prepare the way of the Lord. He will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and of children to their fathers. And now an angel has come to an old man with an old woman and has said, you will have a son. Elijah will come. But you'll call his name John because God is gracious. I'd love to stop this story there because that's just beautiful. All the threads of the Old Testament fit together at that point, it seems, they're, or, or, or they're about to. It's like the, the puzzle outlines have been laid over the previous weeks with Abram and Hagar and Abraham and Isaac and um, uh, Manoah and his wife and Samson and David and Solomon. And what does all of this mean? The outline is there. But then the, the picture begins to form with this. There's still some missing pieces, but you already know what the outcome is. You know where it's headed. And yet, Zechariah's response is not that of a devoted man. You see, Zechariah was not only a devoted man, he was a doubtful man. But God is still gracious. Zechariah says to... Um, uh, well, when Zechariah sees this angel... He's troubled and fear falls upon him. The angel says, do not be afraid. Now, I think we would fear if we saw an angel as well. So let's, let's not necessarily lay that on him. But what he says from verse 18 is inexcusable. This being that has filled him with such fear as he stands alone in the holy place, this Entity that, that has come to him and said, you will have a son. The Lord has heard your prayer. How is this, how's this man, how does this creature even know that I don't have a child, that I don't have a son, that, that I, my wife is barren and she's the one who's going to bear it. And I, I don't understand what's going on here. You would think externally from it that that he would take it seriously. No one's allowed in the room but him at this time. And an angel is there. Something else is there. So, okay, this, this didn't just materialize. This is clearly something from God. Such that he was filled with fear. Perhaps he, he start, started thinking, okay, I know I'm blameless before the eyes of the people, but in my heart, I'm aware of a few things that God could strike me dead for. Zechariah answers when the angel fills him with this good news, great news of great joy. How shall I know this? Some people are like, well, Mary asked a similar question. Well, actually, she, Mary, her posture was believing. She was just wondering how it was going to work. How shall this be? How's it going to happen? I just want to know some of the mechanics involved. Um, this, this is like, how can I know this? Uh, how, do, how can I know this? There's an angel in front of me in a room that only I'm allowed in. An angel, that, uh, creature that was not here when I was here. I mean, I walked into the room and he was not there. 
I've been offering the incense and suddenly this fearsome being appears. I mean, I, I, I think that's a pretty good sign, isn't it? Do you ever hear someone when you're trying to tell them something about the gospel and they say, oh, I'll, I'll believe it if an angel from heaven tells me or if I have this particular kind of spiritual experience. Well, Zechariah had an angel and there's no doubt about it being an angel in his mind and he did not believe. How can I know this? And then he starts giving all of his excuses. For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. A doubtful man. God is gracious. I don't know about you, but I quite like Gabriel. Um, this guy, Angel, he has, he has a, you know, a, a good attitude. If you, you'll know what I mean. He's like, I'm an old man. My wife is advanced in years. Gabriel answers, I am Gabriel. Gabriel. Gabriel means strong man of God. I'm an old man, Zachariah says. Gabriel is, I am a strong man of God. I stand in the presence of God. Uh, you think you, you, you've, you have your lot drawn and you're a big shot. You get to come in here and offer the incense and all of that once in your life. And you serve in the presence of the Lord in some shape and fashion. You know, but this temple is nothing. I'm in the very presence of the Lord, the throne room of God. I am Gabrielle, strong man of God. I stand in the presence of the Lord. And I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. Oh, he's, just he's just stating the obvious, but there's a little bit of, you know, I don't, I don't know how to, sticking it to him a bit, isn't he? Proving a point. I would say godly resent. I normally we think of resent not being a sanctified thing, but it's like just, I, I was sent to you to bring you good news, and this is your response. How can I know this? to the angel of the Lord, the strong man of God who stands in his presence. Well, it has consequences. Behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. You want to know? You want a little something extra other than me? Then you're not going to be able to speak. And it's a little worse than that because later on in, at the end of chapter 1, we, we see people making signs to Zechariah. You don't have to make signs to someone who can't speak. He lost his hearing too, the poor man. A doubtful man. But God is gracious. I mean, this is, a, this is part of the man's character. He knows his weakness. He knows he's old. He knows his wife is old. And, and sometimes, the, you know, the, the test of, of a person's faith is when there's a situation like that that seems insurmountable, and God says something, and we're like, are we going to believe God in this situation, or are we going to believe our situation and our circumstances?
God is gracious. He sent a strong man from his very presence to him to bring him good news. Zechariah didn't deserve it. God is gracious. And it's not like he withdrew it in light of, of Zechariah's doubt. It's not like, oh, Zechariah, you had your chance. You know, we could have really done great things together. But you, you've really let me down. You've let God down. Uh, I, I guess I'm going to go back to God and report, and he's going to send me to someone else because you're a doubter. No. It doesn't change the substance of the promise. The promise remains. You shall have a son, and you will call his name John. So we, we, we see Zechariah now, and we've gone from devoted to doubtful, and it's just now just humiliating. A deaf and dumb man. But God is gracious. He can't hear. People have to make signs to him. He can't speak. He has to make signs to others. And he gets to go home to his wife and somehow communicate with her something of what's going to happen without speaking. Bearing in mind, uh, literacy wasn't great anyway in those days, but it was even less great when it comes to women. doesn't spell that out in the text. It's just another potential obstacle that he had to deal with as a mute man. We're told that he went home. Before he went home, he had some splaining to do outside. The people were waiting for him. They were wondering at his delay in the temple. When he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he'd seen a vision, and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. He walked about his service, devoted man that he was. He kept going, couldn't speak. It seems he couldn't hear. And he goes back to his home, and all it says, after these days his wife Elizabeth conceived... For five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. God is gracious. But Zechariah is still deaf and dumb. Charles Spurgeon um, says, See how judgment was tempered with mercy. This punishment sent to Zechariah was not so severe as it might have been, Instead of being struck deaf and dumb, he might have been struck dead. He doubted God. He questioned God. He, he was, how can I know this? And God had already shown him everything he needed. Indeed, God is truly gracious. Imagine those nine months. Zechariah is set at home in the hill country of Judea. And his wife is having to gesture to him that She's pregnant. And all he can do is sit there and watch. Thank God he still had his sight. But, but he sat watching. He can't speak. He can't console. He can't comfort. He can't affirm. He can't, you know, 
chat, he can't plan, he can't do any of the normal things that a man with a pregnant wife has to do or consider. He can't do the normal cultural announcements as far as their people were concerned. He sat deaf and dumb in the house. Six months later, someone comes into the house from their extended family. And he misses out on all the excitement of young Mary talking about Zachariah's old friend Gabriel appearing to her and saying, you will have a child. And it's not that you can't have a child, it's that you shouldn't have a child because you're a virgin and you've not been with anyone. And she's talking about how how her soul magnifies the Lord. All Zechariah can do is sit in the room and watch as, as Elizabeth gestures to her, her, her womb and talk about, oh, John leapt in my stomach because he knew the, 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 the Lord whose way he's supposed to prepare is in, is in your womb. And he, and he sees all of this and they're all, so it's a, some sort of mime show. He can't hear, he can't speak. He can't hear as Mary says, My soul magnifies the Lord. My, my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for He's looked on the humble estate of His servant. Now all generations will call me blessed, for He who is mighty has done great things for me. Holy is His name. Imagine Zechariah at home with Elizabeth and Mary breaking into prophetic song like that and not being able to hear it. Her mouth's moving, but you can't. The hope that Zachariah's son is supposed to prepare the way of is being proclaimed and sung about. It's not there. But the time comes for Elizabeth to give birth. If you're following along, it's verse 57. She bore a son. Her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her. And, and they rejoiced with her, and on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father. Now we're eight days after the birth, and he's still not speaking or hearing. The mother answers, no, he shall be called John. And they said to her, none of your relatives is called by that name. It's interesting, they, they, you know, she's communicating that. There's no record of him communicating what they were going to name the child. Maybe there was some means of communicating that. But when your faculties are completely shut down, options are very limited. No, he will be called John. God is gracious. So they try to bypass Elizabeth. And they go to the father. It says they made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted him to be called. He gestures for a writing tablet. And imagine as he writes, that's all he could do. And he holds up the paper. The parchment. The tablet. His name is John. God is gracious. 
and immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed and he spoke. And what did he do when he spoke? Nine months of seeing an impossibility born out in front of him. Nine months of seeing the miracles of God at work in his wife. Nine months, well, six months of, 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 of sorry, three months of seeing the miracle of God at work, probably with a bit of confusion because Mary wasn't married, but this, this relative expanding. And, and, and nine months of the glories of God, nine months of learning his mouth shut, his ears stopped, but seeing the power of God at work around him, pent up blessings to God, pent up worship before the Lord. And so he, he blessed God. Fear came all, on all the neighbors, and all these things were talked about. All who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, what will this child be? And we're told that Zechariah, filled with the Holy Spirit, prophesied. The overflow of those nine months of God working in him through what he was seeing around him. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. You see, this devoted man who, be, who was a doubtful man, who became a deaf and dumb man, is now a delighted man. Filled with joy and gladness. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. Why? For he has visited and redeemed his people. It's not happened yet. Ah. But Zechariah is living in the promise of the future hope of eternal salvation. He's raised up a horn of salvation for us. The presence of, of Christ, the presence of Messiah in the world is good news. It means that God has, ha, has put boots on the ground and is taking the fight to their long oppressive enemies. In the house of his servant David, he's raised us up. He's, he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers, to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hands of our enemies, might serve him with fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, talking to his son now, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare His ways, to give knowledge of salvation to His people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Now why did I not belabor the reading of that? Because it's so packed with richness that you should pause, shouldn't you? It's one long sentence in Greek. The man couldn't keep it all in. He couldn't belabor it with expositional detail. He just had to spit it out. He's not been able to speak. He's not been able to sing. It's, now it's all coming out. And it focuses, notice, not on his son first, but on the one whom his son is supposed to herald. He knows salvation is not from John. He knows as it would later be written, 
John was not the light. But he came to bear witness about the light. The true light was coming into the world. There were still a few months left to go. But in this moment, Zechariah prophesies the redemptive hope that is in Jesus. Hope that John will declare. Later, many years later, John would bear witness about the light. John would stay in the wilderness. A Nazarite. He wouldn't eat the normal things, drink the normal things, look normal. He was a wild, hairy man wearing hairy clothes, eating weird food. And he's out in the wilderness. And masses of people are coming to him. Because centuries after Malachi spoke, the word has gotten out that Elijah is here. There's a prophet in our midst again. And one day the people were there gathered around this prophet the first of many centuries. And the prophet is asked, who are you? And he didn't deny, but he confessed, I am not the Messiah. I'm not the Christ. I can't save you. Furthermore, he said, I baptize with water. But there's someone standing among you you don't know him. He's the one coming after me. I am unworthy to untie the straps of his sandals. They're all wondering who this is. John is there again by the waters. And he sees Jesus. And he points to him and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John would have to confess who he was not. He was not the Christ. And he would then go on to have to confess who, he, who, who Jesus is. Jesus is the Christ. I'm not the Christ. You're not the Christ. I, I can't save myself, much less you. You can't save yourself, much less anybody else. Jesus is the Christ. And he's the one who has entered into the Holy of Holies. There's no debate about whether Jesus has entered into the holiest presence of God. There's no question about whether He was on this side of the curtain or that. There's no question about, is Jesus the great high priest? Because we're told that Jesus on the cross tore the curtain at distance. He's on the cross and the curtain separating us from the holiest of places was torn from top to bottom so that you and I can enter into the presence of the Lord. We can go in and we can not offer sacrifice for sin, not offer incense for, for confession, but we can go in and offer simple prayers of praise and sacrifices of praise because Jesus saves. He's our great high priest who made once for all satisfaction for our sins on the cross, satisfying the righteous justice of God, turning it away, washing us of our sins, 
bringing us into the presence of the Father. You can know that good news. When Gabriel was a bit testy with Zechariah there in the holy place, I'm Gabriel. I stand before the presence of God, and I was sent to share this good news for you. He had yet to proclaim even better news. John is good news. John tells us God is gracious. Jesus is the good news. Jesus is the graciousness of God personified. He is the gracious God with us. So we trust in Him. Some years ago, I was sit outside. There was a winter drinks and cakes event that our um, residents association was running and I was engaging with the locals and I met a man who is a part of a religion from Syria and Iraq. I've never forgotten it because I, I didn't realize people like this existed. I, I learned a lot talking to him. He's a follower of John the Baptist. The whole religion is built around John the Baptist. Ours isn't. John the Baptist is the messenger. John the Baptist is the prophet. John the Baptist is the one who prepares the way of the Lord. He's not the Lord himself. Let's listen to the message of John today. John points from himself. He points out to Jesus. God is gracious. The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Father, I pray that you would help us to believe this, to walk in its promise and power. Lord God, help us not to doubt. Help us not to despair. Help us, Lord, not to, when you have revealed such wonders to us, say, how can I know this? When you've given us all that we need. Fill us with faith. Help us to be faithful. And Lord God, may we know the truth that you are gracious in Jesus' name. Amen.